All right, all right, here we go. Turn in your Bible, if you have them, to Luke 23. We're going to launch from verse 26 in Luke 23. We're coming up on Easter in both the text and our calendar. I don't know how your experience was growing up, but today I'm wearing a shirt to honor my mother. Every Easter, she would dress me in bright pastels as a child. I think I have a picture here. There is me. It's, it's hard to see, but I texted my, my mom last night. She verified that was a mint green suit coat I was wearing. There you go. Check out the bangs. It looks like they were cut with a craft jagged scissors. I cut my own kid's hair, so I'm never going to feel bad about it again. Uh, but that was me. Six months after that, my hair started turning gray. Uh, but Easter is coming up. That'll be next week. By the way, you know who loves Easter? 90s hip-hop artist Snoop Dogg loves Easter. You know why? He loves to proclaim Christ is risen. If you don't know Snoop Dogg, he made up his own language and he talked like that. If you're too white to get the joke, that's okay too. <clears throat> but we are coming up on Easter. The thing about Easter, in order to get to the bright pastels of Easter, you have to go through the gloomy, murky shadows of the death of Jesus. And that's where we're going to be today. Let's pray before we jump in here in Luke 23. God, have mercy on us as we dare look upon the death of your perfect Son, all of its messiness. But Lord, encourage us. It's counterintuitive to be encouraged by someone's death, and yet this is the focal point of Christianity. All of our faith, all of our belief is centered around what Christ does in these two weeks, along with his perfect life. So God, give us the wherewithal to focus and be moved and transformed by your Spirit through the text today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's March Madness time. Whether you're a fan or not, this is a crazy consuming time of basketball. And as I was watching the tournament recently, I was reminded of one player who won three straight championships in basketball in NCAA, and in each of those tournaments, he was the most outstanding player. So three straight championships, three best player awards. In high school, this guy went 79-2, and two, only lost two games throughout high school. His name is Ferdinand Alcindor. You might know him as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he played a while ago, but he was a fantastic basketball player. And I remember watching him as a kid. And though he was a great basketball player, he had one of the ugliest shots ever invented. In basketball, you're taught to square your shoulders and have a solid base and face the rim before you shoot. This guy would shoot sideways, cock his head, and go up on one leg. And then he would take the ball way around like this. And he would make it. 
He was deadly accurate with this shot. It became what some coaches said, the biggest weapon in all of sports. He was six-time NBA MVP. For perspective, Jordan only had five. LeBron has four. He scored more points in basketball than anyone else. Again, 8,000 more than Jordan, 6,000 more than LeBron. This guy dominated the game, but he had the worst-looking shot ever. And that's the way life works sometimes. Sometimes the most perfect things are the messiest looking things. And so it is when we approach the cross of Christ. The gruesome, torturous act, but it has a perfect effect. And that's what we'll see in the text today in Luke 23. Christ's death is perfect in several ways. What I want to do first is go over the story in Luke 23 to make sure we remember it and we have our context and then we'll comb back through the text in order to find marks of Christ's perfection within His death. So let's start here. Luke 23, verse 26. I'll kind of read through it and pause to make sure we understand the story and then we'll work our way back through it. Luke 23 Beginning in verse 26, the Word of God says this, And as they led him away, that's Jesus, trial is over now, they're leading him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene. He was coming in from the country, and they laid on Simon the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Jesus probably would have been carrying the beam over his shoulder. By this time, his body is too worn down to carry it all the way up the hill. So a bystander is grabbed, Simon of Cyrene, that's modern-day Tripoli in Africa. Most likely a black guy, though we're not certain he was from Africa. He was foreign, and he was drafted in at this crucial time in the story of the death of Jesus because Jesus can no longer carry the load. Verse 27, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and they were lamenting for Jesus. But turning to them, Jesus says this. He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? What's Jesus talking about? He turns to the crowds who are so sad and so broken about His torture and His upcoming death. And He actually warns them about the coming judgment on Jerusalem. Jesus knows the wrath being poured out on Him is also going to be featured later when God reacts to the rejection of his own son Jesus, by the Jewish people, and he allows Jerusalem to be destroyed in an awful, awful display of God's wrath. Jesus warns them of this tragedy in that terrible day. Verse 32, And there were two others who were criminals, and they were led away to be put to death with Jesus. Now both Isaiah the prophet and Jesus earlier in his own ministry had predicted that he would die among scoundrels. So here we see that prophecy being fulfilled. 
verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the school, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. The actual site here called the school was probably so named because it was a rock or a mountain shaped like a head, like a school. Uh, some feel that David may have buried the head and the school of Goliath here in this spot. Remember in the story of David uh, slaying Goliath, the part you might not tell your children is that David actually decapitated his head, Goliath's head, and perhaps he buried it here, so they called this place the place of the school. The name of Calvary is Latin for the Greek cranium that we see here in the text. So if you ever wonder why we call this hill Calvary, that is Latin for cranium, looks like a school. Verse 34, as this is going on, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At his hardest hour, Jesus is still calling out to God. That's application point number one. What do you do in your hardest hour? We'll speak more about this forgiveness later. It's inconceivable. Continuing on in verse 34. And they cast lots to divide his garments. That would be the officer standing guard. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. That would be the Jewish rulers, Pharisees and the like. And they said, mocking him, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also a mocking inscription over his head. Said, this is the king of the Jews. If you were here last week, you heard John Mark talk about all of the ironies that Luke puts into the story. And here today, we see this account dripping with irony because the characters in the story are actually saying more than they know. They attempt to be mocking Jesus, but they're actually proclaiming what is true. He is the chosen one. He is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, at this point, Jesus is now hanging having been put on the cross. And one of the criminals who were hanged with him, they railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Again, being mocked. But the other one rebukes the first criminal, saying, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he turns, this second criminal, to Jesus, saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said back to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. They say haters are going to hate. It turns out saviors are going to save. Here in his last moment, as he is dying, Jesus takes the time to save yet another and offer forgiveness to one of the criminals here. Apparently there's honor among thieves because one criminal turns and he sees the bitter bandit blaspheming God's son and he takes issue with it. He rebukes him. 
and in taking issue with the blasphemy of another, this thief is expressing what's happening in his heart. He is being changed. So much so that Jesus turns to him and says, I'm going to see you again. Even today, I'll be with you in paradise. Or what's referred to as Abraham's bosom. The holding place where all the Old Testament saints are held. This is where Jesus goes to and he invites the thief on the cross to go with him. Verse 44. It's now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sunlight failed. Though the Bible doesn't tell us one of our best possible uh, scenarios for the date of the death of Jesus is April 3rd, 33 A.D. We do have some historical evidence and we have some evidence from astrology. So that's probably the best date. The time here would be from noon until 3 when it got dark. They probably got started about 9 a.m. And from noon until 3, the lights went out. It got dark. The darkness carried with it the imagery of God's judgment. In the Old Testament, if you read about the day of the Lord, when God is going to judge sin, it's explained in terms of darkness. And you see that darkness here. Continue in verse 45. At the same time, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' spirit wasn't taken from him. He wasn't passive. He actually gave it up. And having said this, Jesus breathed his last. And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he actually praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had been assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. That's mourning. They're in anguish. Something's not right here. And all his acquaintances and the women who'd followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. As in the resurrection narrative, the, wi- the women show up strongly here. They're noted for faithfully standing by Jesus when many others went home. Verse 50, and closing our account. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, He was a member of the council. That's the religious council, the Jewish religious council. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action that was to kill Jesus. For he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that was cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they, the women, returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandments. After Simon of Cyrene, Luke only chooses to show the name, to name one other person, and that's Joseph, Arimathea here. Uh, John tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple. So he's a part of the leadership council of the Jewish people, the group that actually condemned Jesus, but he was secret. 
follower, secret disciple. And John tells us that Nicodemus, also known for his nighttime excursions, actually came with Joseph to take the body of Jesus down off the cross and put it into a tomb. So we see here that though Jesus was killed in shame, he was actually buried in honor in the uh, never-before-used, the new tomb of a wealthy, prestigious man. And once again, we see the women who followed Jesus stepping up to the plate, setting the stage for their important part in the resurrection story next week. Now that we have a feel for the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, I want to run back through it here and see how indeed he has a perfect death. There's three ways I want to mention. Firstly, I want to say the death of Jesus is perfect in that it satisfies the wrath of God. The death of Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. When you think about the biblical notion of who people are, it's complex because on the one hand, the Bible presents the picture of people who are arranged and created to reflect the majesty of God. We're icons of God's glory. We're avatars of His magnificence. We're worthy of love and respect just because we're created in God's image. But on the other hand, the Bible also shows us that people are selfish, rogues, broken, fallen, and responsible to God for all of our evil. Therefore, if we were in the court of God, we would deserve justice and punishment for our evil against God. It's what we deserve. But in the death of Jesus, what we see is the perfect satisfaction of justice. Because God is going to pour out all of His punishment that we deserve on Jesus Himself. And God's wrath will be perfectly satisfied. Where do we see it? Look back in verse 39. Remember what was happening in 39? Jesus is seen as being tortured and crucified, hung between two thugs, two bad dudes. And as he's being mocked by the one, look again carefully at the words of the other. The respectful criminal says this. He says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. As I said before, this guy is speaking more than he knows. In the narrative, this is the voice of you. You are supposed to picture yourself in the place of the criminal saying, don't you realize we all deserve this condemnation? Because our crimes against God, we stand being sentenced to die. If you look on in verse 41, the criminal keeps talking. He said, and we indeed justly are being condemned for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. The criminal is saying, again, speaking on behalf of all mankind. We're receiving in death our due rewards. When speaking of God's wrath, one theologian put it this way. Robert Raymond said this, when you think about the wrath of God, God's wrath, of course, must not be construed in any measure as capricious, uncontrolled, or irrational fury. Nor is God himself malicious 
or vindictive or spiteful. God's wrath is simply His instinctive holy indignation and settled opposition of His holiness to sin, which, because He is righteous, expresses itself in judicial punishment. It is His personal divine revulsion to evil and His personal vigorous opposition to it. So God's holiness demanded that sin be dealt with, and in the death of Jesus, we see Him dealing with it in order to forgive. But note, again in verse 41, look at how the criminal describes Jesus. In one sense, He's speaking for all of us when He says, we deserve this condemnation. In another sense, He's speaking the truth when He turns to Jesus and He says, this man, Jesus, He's done nothing wrong. Luke is putting that in the narrative so you'll understand the innocence of Christ. More clearly, the Roman centurion later says, on down, certainly this man is innocent. And so as you read this, you begin to see what's called the scandal here of the cross. Why is this innocent man dying when it is we who are guilty? The criminal says he's innocent. The centurion says he's innocent, and yet he's dying when we know we ourselves hold so much guilt. The answer is, only the death of such a worthy God-man could fully satisfy the anger and wrath of God. We know he caught the full brunt of God's wrath because he died. The whole paragraph of Joseph Arimathea taking him and burying him that is to show us that he was really dead. It wasn't a phony death or a fake death. He was really dead and he was really buried. He was truly our substitute. And God's wrath was satisfied. So I spent uh, part of the weekend down in South Carolina with the fellas at the retreat. And they were having a good time uh, just goofing off and being guides. But also singing some worship songs. And uh, Pastor Gladman was there teaching and he had an illustration on this point that I'm going to steal. This is my way of connecting you to the men's retreat. But you all missed it, but I will share with you what Gladman said in part. He had an illustration. He said, one way to think about this, I have props, is to think about your standing with God as if he is an employer and you have a personnel folder here, an HR folder of sorts. And in there are all of your actions towards God, right? Your record at the company. And if you open it up, what you see here is, I don't know if you can read that, but sin, that's what you bring to God. All of your actions of rebellion, selfishness, pride, you bring sin, and that's what's in your folder. And after a while, you know anyone who brings this to their boss over and over again they deserve to be canned, right? If you kept doing that in your job, you would be fired. But then imagine another folder. This is the folder of Jesus himself. And if you were to open it up, you would see a clean slate. A blank righteousness perfection of Jesus. And what we have at the cross is actually what theologians call the great exchange. When Christ does His work, what happens is inside your folder, 
You now get the righteousness of Jesus placed upon you. But in order for justice to be served, all of your sin must go into the folder of Jesus. Your sin is in His folder, and this folder must be destroyed as an offering and a sacrifice to a holy God. It only works because Jesus' folder is perfect. He is the God-man making the sacrifice. He is the God-man who is the sacrifice. And so it appeases the just and holy wrath of God. Next week, we hope to baptize one of our college students here, Victor Olson. Hopefully he'll testify before we baptize him. But I was talking this week with him about the crucifixion of Jesus and about this text. And I asked him what he thought about after we read it. And he looked at me and he said, you know what this means? He said, this means when I screw up, I don't have to worry about God holding this over my head and doing something to make up for every screw up that I do. And I thought, that's the guy I want to baptize because he, he gets grace, right? He gets it. God's wrath has been satisfied in the cross and he's, no, he's not a God who's holding sin over your head. There's a lot of freedom there. Christ's death is perfect, so you don't have to be. Let's rejoice in that. And you may not feel that way. You may not feel many days good enough for God. You have deep struggles. Maybe you struggle with depression. Maybe you struggle with self-image. Maybe you struggle with body image. And you don't feel good enough for God. The simple blessed truth of the gospel is if you believe in Him, He will welcome you with open arms. He's that type of compassionate Father. Even more than that, He will love you as He loves His own Son because of Christ's righteousness that's now in your folder. God can wrap His arms around you. You can run to Him. If you think about it, that's different then every other relationship in your life. Because everybody else is going to treat you based at least somehow on your merit. Even my mother, as I texted her last night about that goofy picture, she said, yes, tell everybody it was mint green. And also tell them you were such a sweet baby. Mom doesn't have a lot of bad thoughts about me, but if I mistreat my mom, it's going to change the way she thinks about me. Everybody's always judging you based on what you do, what you say, whether it's your job, in your neighborhood, your sport, your music. God doesn't work like that. He judges you based on what Jesus has done. You say, that's not fair. Sounds good, but it's just not fair. It can't be true. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. And it's justice. Because the death of Jesus satisfies the justice of God. That's the first way in which the death of Jesus is perfect. Secondly, it's also perfect because it brings us to God as forgiven. The death of Jesus is perfect because it brings us to God as forgiven. So it's one thing to say, as I have, 
that God's wrath has been appeased, but it's quite another for God to welcome us into his family based on what Jesus did in our text today. If you're here and you're married, you know how relationships work. Your spouse might get mad at you, and they may express that anger, pouting, yelling, throwing things. However it is your spouse expresses anger, maybe it's just a look. And you know there will be a time when that expression will stop. The yelling will stop. The bad looks will stop. Throwing things will stop. Ignoring you will stop. But that doesn't always mean you're back in good graces, right? There still can be some freeze-out. There still can be some distance. That's not the way it is with God, however. The reason relationships stay apart is because there's been no real forgiveness. You know, you can stop screaming at somebody, but still not forgive them, right? But when God forgives us in Jesus, forgiveness accomplishes communion. And that's glorious. He brings us into Himself. This is the ultimate goal of all redemption. God wants you to come to Himself and rest and behold His beauty and His glory in Jesus. So where do we see indications of this in the text? Look back at verse 34. This is the way stories work, right? In stories, you have to catch glimpses of what the author is trying to teach you. Movies work that way. They're not going to spell it out for you. You have to catch the clues. Verse 34, the main character, Jesus, is screaming out as he's being crucified, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Author Tim Chalice says here, now here's a moment of grave injustice. The sickest, most twisted moment in all of human history as man is putting God to death. What we would expect in a moment of such injustice and a moment of extreme suffering is that a person would cry out for vengeance, right? Father, strike them down! Or Jesus could say, don't hold them guiltless. But instead, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's inconceivable the amount of forgiveness that's being poured out from the lips of Jesus as he is being tortured for your sake. Later, in verse 33, I'm sorry, 43, as we read Jesus, in verse 43, guarantees a rendezvous with the criminal in paradise. That would not happen. Criminals cannot come in contact with God unless there's deep forgiveness. We're supposed to get that from the story. Still later, in verse 45, the powerful image. In your mind's eye, you are to see the curtain in the temple Now, it might be hard for you because you don't study the temple a lot, even remember what the temple was like. But the temple was a big building, and it had uh, two curtains. So imagine if this were the temple, this room here, and that was the entrance. You would have a first curtain that the priest could come in and do their stuff in the temple, and there would be another curtain here 
that only once a year one priest could come inside because no one was really holy enough to come inside this representative space of God's presence. Here when Jesus died, this curtain is rended, rent in two. Fabulous curtain of blue and red, spectacular looking, is just ripped right in two. Why is that? There's now no barrier for those who believe in God. They are able to come into His presence and experience a phenomenal intimacy with God due to the death of Jesus. Last weekend, the movie I Can Only Imagine debuted. Maybe you've seen that movie. Maybe you haven't. I won't give away any spoilers. All I say can be learned from the trailer in case you want to see it. But it was distinct in that when the movie opened, it was supposed to make $3 million that weekend. Instead, it made $17 million. Actually finished third, this small Christian film, finished third for all the movies this week in North America behind Black Panther and Tomb Raider. I can only imagine it came in third. I actually, what happened was when this Christian film did so well at the box office, people had to go watch it in order to review it. And so I actually read one review from a guy who said, folks, I write about movies for a living and I haven't heard of I Can Only Imagine. Never heard of it. Ironically, the reviewer's name was Chris Evangelista. Christ the Evangelist, that's his name. But if you don't know the story behind the movie, I can only imagine it's the uh, true life story of Bart Millard, who is the lead singer of the group Mercy Me, a Christian group. And he grew up with an abusive dad. And in the movie, it shows that that relationship with his father trickles down into all of his work and all of his other relationships. And as the movie goes on, it becomes obvious that Bart will never find true communion until he deals with this relationship with his father and someone offers forgiveness. Until then, there's not going to be peace. There's not going to be communion. And Jesus grants us such communion with God through the forgiveness that he offers on the cross. This tearing of the temple veil is actually derivative and analogous of something much bigger in Hebrews 9, verse 24, the author writes, For Christ has entered not into holy places made by hand. So the big picture is not that Christ actually goes into the temple. Those are copy of the true things. But Christ enters into heaven itself, and now he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. What Christ accomplishes through his death. Later in chapter 10, Therefore, because Christ has gone into God's presence on your behalf, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can follow with him because of the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through that curtain. This way had never happened before. This way is alive. It's new and living. He did it through his flesh, just as the curtain had to be broken so the flesh of Jesus had to die. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We've been forgiven. You think you've done some bad stuff, and you're right, but you've been forgiven if you trust in Jesus Christ as your covering, as your forgiveness, as your treasure. Paul says this clearly in Romans 5.10 when Paul said, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This great reconciliation bringing us to God and bringing God to us is accomplished by Jesus Christ. Eternal life can be yours today if you trust in this great reconciling work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's only because of this perfect death that we are welcome into God's family as forgiven. That means He's as approachable as a father could ever be. Charles Wesley was an English hymn writer, among other things. and He had a phenomenal output. It's said that he wrote in his lifetime over 6,000 hymns. He was the type of guy that when anything happened in his life, he would write a song about it. So he thought France was going to invade, he writes a song. Something happens in his marriage, he writes a hymn. A friend dies, he writes a hymn. There's riots in the street, Wesley has a hymn for it. There's a fantastic line in his classic hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? It says this, It says, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. It is through the definite, distinct work of Jesus that we can have remarkable intimacy through prayer, and one day through personal proximity to God Himself. I realize this can be challenging to even think about this intimate father thing because some of us come from hard family relationships. I get that. You have to know where your father held grudges, God never does. Where your dad left you, God will never check out and never forsake you. Where your pop was distant, God comes close as the perfect father. My son is uh, playing ball for his school soccer team. And me and my wife tried to, one of us be at the games every week. And uh, he was talking not too long ago, and he's asking, Julie, which one of you is going to be at the game, you or pop? And she said, Papa's going to be there. And he had a reaction. Rolled the eye, maybe flipped the hair. I'm too happy with it. And so she's like, what's wrong with him going? And, and the thing is, is that he knows my ways. It is my tendency because they charge $5 to go to the game. And that adds up if I have two other kids with me to watch the game. I will sometimes on occasion drive up to the road over the field (laughs) and have a bird's eye view of the whole thing for free instead of sitting out in the cold and watching it in the rain. So my son's like, you know, if his papa's turn, 
he might not even come in the gate. And he's right. He's right to feel that way. But that's not God. God's not so cheap that he parks far off. It's just the opposite. He pays the price to get in, and he paid it with the death of his son. He's not only in the park, he puts his spirit within you because he desires intimacy with his reconciled people. You're now in the family of the best of fathers, truly and totally reconciled. That's something to enjoy this week. Lots of things are going to go wrong this week. But what's perfect is you have a perfect father due to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Finally, Jesus, thirdly, perfectly destroys Satan's kingdom. In his death, Jesus perfectly destroys Satan's kingdom. Now you might say, wait a minute, I just read that whole text and I didn't see Satan's name mentioned once. It's a bit of a stretch. It's subtle, but I think Luke wants you to know, certainly God wants you to know, that in his death, Jesus destroys Satan's kingdom. Look back. Remember in verse 26, Luke throws to the forefront this man, Simon of Cyrene. Oddly, right in the middle of the story, Luke goes to great detail, not only to name this character, but to tell you where he's from. Why is that? Well, he's a foreigner from another continent and another people group, and yet he is the one who's carrying the cross of Christ. Now remember, cross-carrying for Jesus was a big deal. Remember what he said in Matthew 16, 24. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his own cross, and what? And follow me. Here we have in Simon, a man of a different culture and a different tribe, literally bearing the cross of Jesus in order to picture the realities that the death of Christ was for all tribes, all ethnicities, and all peoples. Now look at verse 44 again. We see here in verse 44, darkness covers the whole area. And this darkness is a sign of God's judgment, but also note that several times in the Scripture, darkness is associated with Satan himself. Paul in Colossians 1.13, he celebrates how Christ delivers us from the domain of darkness. That's the domain of Satan. In Acts 26.18, Paul is sharing his mission and he describes his own mission like this. He said, my, my mission is to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. The scriptures associate darkness with Satan. So here's what's going on. As darkness descends upon Jerusalem and the cross in verse 44, there's an illusion that Satan is winning, right? God is dying, and it looks like Satan is winning. But look three verses later, after verse 44 and verse 47. What do we see here? We see a Gentile, non-Jewish centurion proclaiming, standing in the brilliant light of Christ in the darkness. He begins to praise God. 
right? When you think Satan might be winning, a Gentile is carrying the cross and another Gentile is believing in Satan's finest hour, what's supposed to be his big victory. We see people begin to worship and they are non-Jewish people. Why does this matter? That an African foreigner, an Italian Gentile are bearing crosses and praising God. Well, this represents the destruction of Satan's work. Here's why. In the Bible, we know that Satan's spiritual terrorism strategy is to blind people from seeing who God is. His chief tactic is to mute the glory of Christ so that people will not believe. Revelation 12, 9, John calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. Right? 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He's all about trickery. He's all about deceit. If he can keep tricking people and deceiving them not to worship Christ, he's won. Especially non-Jews, because Christ looks more glorious as many ethnic tribes come to him. But here in the text, we see two Gentiles raising up to proclaim Christ is better, to carry his cross. Satan is losing. If the movie I mentioned before, I can only imagine, is a great tale that's tragic, but it's beamed with hope. The 1983, 1985 novel, Blood Meridian, is just the opposite. It's written by Cormac McCarthy. It's a dark story. I bring it up because it's prevalent in our culture, not because it's a feel-good read. It's a dark story. But what McCarthy did in that novel, Blood Meridian, was give us one of the worst villains you're ever going to find in American literature. The guy named Judge Holden. Judge, Judge Holden is introduced to us as a seven-foot-tall, completely bald, pale guy with no pigment in his skin, He's hairless all over his body, and he's strapping strong and has a high intellect. And the movie, uh, the, the, the book is set in the Wild West. And this guy goes on a terror rampage throughout the West, raiding Indians and camps and whatnot. But the opening scene where we're introduced to this guy is actually a church service. It's a throwback uh, tent revival in the Wild West. So picture that in your mind, and you've got a preacher who screams a lot more than I do, and he's up there, and he's sharing the gospel in this tent service, and all of a sudden, in walks in Judge Holden, seven foot tall, pale, in a slicker, and he walks halfway down, and he interrupts the preacher by raising his hand, and the preacher is so struck by his appearance, and he begins to tell tall tales about the moral fiber of the preacher himself. And he ends up being so persuasive that the town who was here in the tent to follow the preacher's words actually turn against the preacher and they run him out of town and they burn the tent down. This guy steps away and someone asks him, how did you know that preacher? And he's like, I didn't know him at all. I just made it up. I just deceived the masses. And that's the exact strategy of Satan himself. He is out through various means to deceive the nations into turning against God. But at the cross, the chief agenda of Satan 
is demolished. Because here at the cross, what should be his greatest victory, we see his greatest defeat as people are believing even as Jesus is dying. Of course, Jesus knew Satan's tactical plans. Early in Luke 11, verses 21-22, Jesus spoke of Satan as a strong man. Remember that? He said, I'm going to go into his house and I'm going to plunder his house because I'm going to defeat him. John 12, 31, Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be what? Driven out. John writes very clearly in 1 John 3, 8, for this reason the Son of God was manifested in order that he might destroy the works of the devil. Great Scottish theologian John Murray said it like this, the work of Christ is essentially a work of destruction that terminates upon the power and work of Satan. It's surely significant that the first promise of redemptive grace, that's Adam and Eve, the first beam of redemptive life that fell upon our fallen first parents was in terms of the destruction of the tempter. On Calvary, Satan, the slimy snake, struck the Messiah, biting him right in the heel. But on Calvary, Christ crushes the head of the snake in his death. He can no longer deceive the nations. What does this mean for now? Because let's face it, the Bible is proclaiming Satan has been defeated, but there's still a lot of yuck going on out here. So what do we make of this? In fact, I was at the uh, men's retreat, and just when I arrived this weekend, uh, the guys told me they had just found two copperheads in the woodpile. And they killed the copperheads. But they were still saying, watch out, don't go over there, because even a snake can still be dangerous when he's dead. I remember back in 2014 in China, there was a chef there who was preparing the delicacy, the Chinese delicacy of what they call cobra stew. Now you might think, well, that's your first mistake. <laughs> You're eating cobra stew. But it's a good thing there. That's what they eat. It's a fine restaurant. His job was to go out and uh, collect the dead cobra. It had been killed 20 minutes when he went out to collect the body parts. And when he picked up the head, the cobra had the reflex that was still alive in the brain. Bit him. The man ended up dying. We know that's the way snakes work. and Satan works the same way. Still wreaks a lot of havoc now, even though his destruction has already begun at the cross. So how do we really enjoy the destruction of Satan, even though he's still wreaking all this havoc? Well, I read a quote from Scotty Smith, who's a pastor in God's country of Franklin, Tennessee, right below Nashville. It's a long quote, but it includes the meditations of this pastor about the destruction of Satan in form of a prayer, and I want to read it to you here, because what he does is he takes, Scotty takes advantage of the destruction of Satan now by looking forward to what he knows it guarantees will happen in the future. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus, Lord, we're so grateful eternal life includes a world completely devoid of sin evil, 
and brokenness. The idea is because Satan was defeated at the cross, we know one day he'll be ultimately defeated. Though it will require your second coming, nonetheless, we're grateful for that day and we long for it all the more. The eternal day of no bombings or kidnappings, no more human trafficking or even bad traffic, no more greed or need, harming or hurting, meanness or madness, no more disease or uneasiness about anything, no more racism or racing around trying to make a name for ourselves. No more orphans, immigrants, or refugees, for we will live in your forever welcome as your beloved family. Every person, place, and thing will be redeemed and restored, radiant and robust. Hasten the day, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for destroying the devil's work by your cross. His crushed head and broken dominion are sweetness to our soul. Peace in our storms and power for our mission. By your shame, you shamed evil. And by your defeat, you destroyed darkness. Terror is now terrified of you. And though the devil is filled with fury, he knows his time is short. So we won't cower or take cover, shrink back or give in to fear. You've won the war and you'll win the remaining battles as well. As full of the world is with evil and devils, it will be filled thousands of times over with your glory and your beauty. I mentioned earlier the surprise success of the film I can only imagine. I heard the director interviewed this week and someone said, why do you think your little Christian film did so well? And the director said, well, I think there's a large segment of people who are looking for hope. They want to leave the theater with something to hope for. And in the text today, our hope rests squarely on the death of Jesus. He has satisfied the wrath of God. He has brought you into the presence, reconciled and forgiven, and he has destroyed perfectly the works of Satan. Those are the thoughts that we are now going to bring to the table of the Lord's Supper. In a moment, I'll pray. After that, if you're a Christian, we invite you to come to the tables, two at the front, one at the back, and take the elements. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you watch us. But God can show himself to you through this too. So be attentive. God might be working in your heart. A Christian, as you approach the table, you are to look backwards at Jesus' wonderful death and remember it through the cup and the bread, and you are to look forward at the consummation of all of Christ's work when he returns one day victorious based on what he has accomplished at the cross. Let's pray together. God, thank you for all that you accomplished in Jesus. I ask that you speak to us now as we gather and as we yield to take the Lord's Supper. Humble us. Help us to enjoy who you are. Lead us to a deep, restful experience of you based on the death of Jesus for all your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.